My name is Marcus Donaldson. I'm one of the pastors here. Like Kelly said, I want to welcome you to City Church. This is a place where everyone is welcome because no one is perfect. We mean it. Um, For the last, I guess, few months now, we've been in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We've been calling it the greatest sermon of all time because historically it's been called the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. Amen? All right, this is my third time going through it, second time preaching through it. All right. Second time preaching through it, and each time um, I've seen, I'm reminded of the power of Scripture. I'm reminded of the power of the Holy Spirit working through His Word and through His people and transforming them into the image and likeness of Christ, sanctifying us so that our lives might glorify Him more and more. Um, if that's your experience so far, at least to this point, amen? Amen. 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 All right. So cool. I'm not alone. Today we're talking about uh, anger. All right. So we'll be in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. If you want to grab your spot there, that's okay. But we, we're going to take a little detour before we get there. So in the early 16th century, everything that the church did was in Latin. Right? It's um, scripture reading, it's hymns, anthems, or well, most of the hymns, most of the anthems, um, the preaching, everything that it did was in Latin. Okay, so the average person had no way of understanding what was preached, what was taught, what was read, what was sung. It was all in Latin. The average person had no way to understand. So, because the average person had no way of understanding what uh, scripture said they couldn't read it because it was in Latin they had to just take everything that the priest or pastor preacher Bible teacher taught okay so imagine if our Bibles were in Latin is there anybody in here who can fluently read Latin now say I was the only one and I taught like I am right now but the Bible was in Latin you'd have to take or trust everything that I'd say. Imagine there's no internet where you can Google everything and there's no YouTube where you can look at somebody else who's teaching it. You had to trust me. Now, the the problem with this is that the church created a, a bunch of traditions that went further and further and further and further from the truth of Scripture. Right? Sinful men, even with the best of intentions, are still sinful. So they deviated from the scriptures and began teaching their traditions. Now the reason that I bring this up is because the, one of the greatest contributions of the Protestant Reformation was putting the Word of God into the people of God's hand in a language that they can read and understand. See, we have a a Bible that we can read from. If you have a Bible, raise your hand. Amen. And if if you download an app, you can get it in multiple translations. Right? So if you don't like the archaic King James, you can read from the ESV or the NIV or the NLT or the... It just keeps on going and going and going. We have freedom and accessibility to the Word of God that shapes and transforms us into the image and likeness of Christ through His Spirit. And we sometimes take it for granted. Now, again, the, in a less extreme way, the Jews of Jesus' day faced the same situation. See, they 
had began speaking Aramaic instead of Hebrew. Aramaic is a Semitic language. It's similar to Hebrew, but not the same. So during the Babylonian exile, during and after, they, they started using Aramaic and it became more and more and more common and they got further and further away from the Hebrew scriptures. Now there are a few that uh, were originally written in the Old Testament in Aramaic, right? Parts of Ezra, Jeremiah, Daniel uh, were originally written in Aramaic. Now the Septuagint, it was widely used by Jews throughout the Roman Empire. The Septuagint is the, um, the Greek copy of the Old Testament. So it's widely used by Jews throughout the empire. However, Jews in Palestine didn't use it. Plus, it was bulky, it was expensive, it was um, hard to, to get for the average person. So even the Septuagint uh, belonged to mostly the wealthy and everything else. So... As a result, the people, right, when they returned from exile, Nehemiah 8.8 says this, they read from the book of the law, or sorry, they read from the book, from the law clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. They couldn't read the Aramaic, so uh, the prophets, they would read from the book of the law and they would translate it into the language of the people so that they could understand and live a life glorifying to God. Now most later, most later scribes and Pharisees, they didn't translate it. They didn't explain it. Instead, they taught from the Talmud. I'm still getting some interference. Are you all doing all right? Okay. They would teach from the Talmud, which is, it's a Jewish codices, like it's, it's exhaustive, it's a bunch of traditions and laws and everything else, that's what they would read from. That's what they would read from, and that's what they would teach instead of the Jewish scriptures. Now, it may not, well, it's, it's bad, any way you look at it, but as the centuries went on, just like the Roman Catholic Church in the early 16th century, they departed further and further and further from the scriptures. So when Jesus, when he begins his teaching ministry, this is why we see the people, they're, they're shocked. He's unlike any teacher that they have ever heard from, ever, ever taught from, whoever spoke, right? This is why Mark writes this in Mark 1.22. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. He explained the scriptures. He translated the scriptures. Unlike all of the teachers in his day, Jesus, it was clear to them that he was a different kind of teacher. And his message, it was pretty simple, right? Their traditions conflicted with scripture, right? God's primary concern is the internal before the external. Has anybody seen the old Alice in Wonderland, the animated one? Okay, painting the roses red. You know the queen wants to paint the roses red. They go out there and paint them red. See, I think that, that what, we're, what we need to understand before we move forward or before we continue in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is that we can't just paint the roses red. Eventually, the paint will wash off or it'll grow. It, it'll go away. And you'll see the actual color or the, the actual uh, health of the, the flower in this instance, but what I'm saying is this, we don't need more moral therapy. We need heart change. This is Jesus's message. 
We don't need to be better with one another before we're better in our heart. That's Jesus' message. Your traditions, you're trying to paint the roses red. However, when it rains, when something happens, like there will be no meaningful and lasting change unless God has changed your heart. Now, if they would have read scripture, they would have known this for themselves. But like I said, they began speaking Aramaic and they got further from Hebrew. Anyways, but the Old Testament repeatedly expresses that God's first primary concern is our internal before it's the external. God is concerned with the external, but not first. Right, so let me say it another way. He is concerned with what we do, but not before he's concerned with who we are. We've been saying that repeatedly, and so does the Old Testament. In fact, that's the central theme for both the Old and the New Testament. God's first concern is what we're like on the inside before the outside. So Jesus, here in Matthew 5, this big section, 21 through 48, He's contrasting what the scribes and the Pharisees, what they taught compared to what the scriptures say. Now, what we need to understand is that he's not modifying any part of scripture. He's not modifying the Old Testament. He's, uh, his teachings, they stand firmly in agreement with every truth, every word of the Old Testament, yet they reveal that the Jewish religious traditions do not. So this begins in Matthew 5, 21 through 48. Uh, they're called the six antitheses. Everybody just say that with me. Antitheses. antitheses. Oh, no, let's try it together. One, two, three, antitheses. Okay, that's just the plural of antithesis. So it's, it's something or someone that is the direct opposite of someone or something else. So here, the key to each of these, or each antithesis, is uh, that it reveals the inner attitudes. Um, excuse me, here we go. The key is that it return, or reveals the inner attitude behind the external act, demonstrating the shallowness of the Pharisaic external requirements. Sorry, I saw that and I was like, that's a mouthful. Let's just, it reveals that what they were doing is focused on the external. Jesus is, is the antithesis. What he's saying is the antithesis of their tradition. They're focused on the the external. He's focused on the internal, okay? So each antithesis, we we see it in this section, and I want you to look at there at Matthew 5. Start at verse 21, and you see there, you've heard that it was said to those of old. Now, this is how we know that we're beginning one of these antitheses. There's a phrase similar to that. Some homework for you this week, verse 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, and 43, they all begin with a phrase similar to this. This is how we know that we're beginning this section called the antitheses. This is how we know one stops and the other ends. Before Bibles had chapters and verses, before they were enumerated, you had to look for little clues like this. So this for us is a little clue, and this is how we know. But the six antitheses, they're on Murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, uh, relations, or sorry, retaliation, and love of neighbor. They exemplify the better righteousness that Jesus just described in Matthew, 7, or Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And they also further explain the righteousness that, he, uh, that the, the kingdom demands, right? They, they describe the, the better righteousness that he just demanded. 
and that he fulfills in his life in ministry. Now, before we read Matthew 5, 21 through 26, what we need to understand, because it's extremely important, is that Jesus' life in ministry and elsewhere in Scripture do not prohibit all forms of anger. Is that news to anybody? Okay, I didn't think so. The Bible calls this the, the good kind of anger, the anger that Christians are supposed to have at times, righteous indignation. This is anger against sin. Believe it or not, we are supposed to be angry at sin. So this principle, because it's so easily used and abused and misapplied and everything else, I want to just read something that I found for you this week. Many have come to embrace the idea that because they believe that God is not angry, we should not be angry. They argue that to show anger is hateful and unloving and that to be angry at sinners is not how we show love to the world. This thinking is the result of professing Christians embracing the spirit of the age, namely that being angry is hateful and that it is hate speech to stand firm with conviction and to disagree with the practice of that which God declared to be wrong. On the contrary, it is love speech. And then the author goes on to write, as Christians, we should be the most loving and gracious people the world knows. We should be the most righteous and repentant people the world knows. We should be the most principled and steadfast people the world knows. And precisely because we are loving, gracious, righteous, repentant, principled, and steadfast, we should be known by the world as those humble followers of Jesus Christ who get appropriately and necessarily angry at unrighteousness and injustice wherever it exists, whether in the world, in our churches, in our homes, or in our own sinful hearts. As Christians, we stand on the unchanging word of God amid a rapidly changing culture. And we must disagree without being unnecessarily disagreeable people. We must boldly speak out without being belligerent. We must stand stubbornly for righteousness and justice without being harsh, rude, or inconsiderate. And we must be slow to anger, but we must necessarily get angry while not sinning in our anger. The only way we can do that is by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We get angry because we love we get angry for the love of God and for the glory of God. Our silence in the face of evil would be most hateful. I know that's long, but the only way that you can be angry and not sin is by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The only way that, or, or, or being, being silent in the face of evil isn't how we love the world. That's not how we, how we are the salt and the light. That would be most hateful. And it's in righteous indignation or righteous anger that Jesus cleanses the temple uh, of those who defiled it. Now, it's in Matthew 21, 12 through 13, but I want to read from John 2, 14 through 17. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, or yeah, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. In Ephesus, uh, 
or to the believers in Ephesus, Paul writes this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Psalm 19, 53, David writes this, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. This is not the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not talking about righteous anger, anger against sin. Christians are sometimes supposed to have that. Can somebody say amen? Amen. All right, I know you're tracking then. But the kind of anger that Jesus, <laughs> that Jesus is talking about is, in the Greek, it's orgidzo, orgidzo, and that means to be angry. And it carries the idea of a fermenting anger that is continually fed and not allowed to die. Does anybody just, do you have that? Okay, because nobody. I have that all day, every day. So God dealt with me in this text all week. A fermenting anger that is continually fed and not allowed to die. You know, the anger that feels good when you think about it and you're justifying yourself. Amen. You know, it's, it's, that, uh, it's often seen when people hold grudges, they refuse to forgive, they cherish resentment, they delay reconciliation or constantly reminding the person of that one time directly or indirectly. So, so we need to understand today we need to understand today this, this word because I'm going to be using it a, a lot. It's reconciliation and it basically means to change or exchange or to restore when we're talking about it relationally. So the idea is a change of relationship and exchange of active hostility or opposition for goodwill. Friction for friendship wherein attitudes are transformed and hostility ceases. The writer of Hebrew call, or Hebrews calls this anger that Jesus is talking about here he calls it the root of bitterness in Hebrews 12, 15. And in 1 John, we learn that anger is murder in the heart. 1 John 3, 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Did you hear that? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. All right, so with that very lengthy introduction, we'll go ahead and pray and we'll read the text. So y'all bow with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would transform us by your spirit and speak to us through your word so that our lives might glorify you, not just in who we are, who you've made us, but what we do. Thank you for your word and thank you for the work that you're going to do. We'll be sure to give you all the praise, honor, and glory for it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so open your Bibles, Matthew 5, 21. We'll read to verse 26. I need to get a drink of water because my mouth is very dry. All right, if you're there with me, say amen. amen. All right, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out 
until you have paid the last penny. So here's, here's what you want to take out your phones or a piece of paper and a pen. God's demands are deeper than the usual shallow understanding. Murder in the heart is the basis for and is just as serious as murder, which is intentionally taking the life of another human being. And it must be confronted and guarded against. Anger affects how we view ourselves, how we worship God, and how we relate to others. And that's what we're going to be explaining. So the antithesis. How do we know where the antithesis begins? What was it? You have heard. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Great job. We're, we're getting it. So we, so we then see the tradition, right? You shall not murder there in verse 21. He's about to contrast, right? The direct opposite. Here's the tradition, and then we see Jesus' mandate. So he begins by citing the sixth commandment, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder, and Moses reiterates that, of course, in Deuteronomy 5.17. Then he summarizes, Jesus, he summarizes the Old Testament's teachings uh, regarding the penalty for murder. Whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Those who were accused of murder, they were to stand trial, and if convicted, they were sentenced to death. Exodus 21.12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Leviticus 24.17. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Numbers 35, 12, the city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, not the hero, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation. So he cites the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, right? This is the sixth. And then here's what the Old Testament teaches us about the person accused and convicted of murder. See, here's, here's what's been getting me all week is that the people already knew this. They already knew that this was the sixth commandment. They already knew that this was the process for somebody accused of actually murdering somebody. So the self-righteous, self-glorifying crowds who didn't know, who couldn't verify what all their rabbis and scribes had taught, they thought that they were good because they hadn't actually killed somebody. They hadn't intentionally taken somebody's life. But remember, it's an antithesis or it's an antithesis so here comes the contrast in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says to you, or whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So he goes deeper in, in kind of like a descending way with the, the action and the consequence becoming more and more severe and more and more intense as he descends. So look at this, anger with your brother or sister makes you liable to judgment. Now this is the same word for judgment used here as it is for the murderer, right? So if you're angry at your brother and sister, you, you should expect the same judgment that awaits the murderer. Insulting your brother or sister makes you liable to the council, the Sanhedrin, right? And we don't need to get too in the weeds on that, but... Calling your brother or sister a fool, or in the Greek it's moros, or trans, kind of transliterated, not... Anyways, we get the word moron from there. And it makes you liable to God's judgment in hell itself. So in effect, Jesus is saying this, let me tell you what the scriptures actually say. You're not righteous just because you haven't murdered someone. Murder goes much deeper than the external act. Before it's ever carried out, it originates here. And then it comes out of here. 
before it's ever carried out. You think, we know this, murder's not just happenstance, right? Premeditated murder isn't just, you got it. So whether or not those thoughts are acted upon, you've committed murder in your heart and you're guilty to judgment. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Mark 7, 20 through 23, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Do we need to paint the roses red? No, we need to uproot the whole thing. We have to change it on the inside. So why do we think that as we go out into society or even operate in the church, that, that just doing it a little bit different is gonna solve it? If they just understand this, it'll get better. It's a heart change, a heart transformation. We cannot paint the roses red. We cannot, do we get it? Amen? Amen. Okay. Now, in Matthew's gospel, moros or moron shows that it's far more severe than merely calling somebody an idiot, okay? Elsewhere, it's used to describe those who do not truly belong to the kingdom. So you're calling them a non-Christian, an unsaved, unregenerate person, and you're assigning them to hell. Now, Jesus, believe it or not, said more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. And the word hell in the Greek, it's Gena or Gehenna, And uh, this is the first time here in the New Testament that that word Gehenna appears. The the only other time anyone else uses it is James in James 3.6. And this is the place, right, Gehenna. It comes from the Hebrew word Gehimnon or Gehinnom. It's the Valley of Hinnom. Does Does that sound familiar to anybody? Okay, it's known as the Valley of Slaughter, and it was the place where uh, child sacrifice would occur and then eventually became a huge garbage dump, and they would throw dead bodies of executed criminals and animals there, and fires burned continually. Does that sound familiar to anybody? So this whole valley consumed with fire, where they used to do child sacrifices there, now they're throwing all their dump and trash and everything else, Dead bodies executed criminals. That's where it went. So over time, it became the, the, the picture, right? The, the physical illustration of what the Jews expected to be, or, yeah, hell, where, where the wicked went. Now, here's what I'm sensitive to and, and I think that we need to be mindful of, is that Jesus meant to shock the dull sensibilities of his crowd. He meant to shock them completely. Because here are a bunch of people who are like, I've never murdered anybody. I'm good with God. And Jesus' mandate is if you've been angry with your brother in your heart, you've murdered him. And you're liable to the same judgment. Right, because they knew, they knew, just like you and I know today, that many of us hadn't, haven't murdered anybody. I know there may be somebody here. I can't always, yep, I got one in the back. Don't look. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. 
but we've all been angry with somebody. And Jesus is saying that you're guilty of judgment. The same judgment as if you did the physical act. So there's no wiggle room out of this. There's nobody who heard this when Jesus said it who's like, not me, I'm good, Jesus. So they knew that they were guilty and not just guilty, but worthy of the judgment that he describes here, the hell of fire. The same judgment that awaits the murderer. So it's extreme to make clear the expectations and standards of the kingdom far exceed those of the sinful world and the standards set by sinful humanity. Now, this isn't what you say if you want a huge following. This isn't what you say if you pack, want to pack a church. This isn't what you say if you want um, people to think you're cool. But this is what you say if you want to see hearts changed. Amen. Right? So it's hard, and we shouldn't water it down. We can't water it down. And this is the problem. We think that Jesus... God is angry because he's love. Silence in the face of evil would be a most hateful thing. So he's not a a hippie Birkenstock wearing Jesus. He got angry. He drove people out of the temple, right? Because he wanted to see lives transformed for the glory of God. He didn't want a bigger following. He didn't want more money. He wanted heart change. Okay, so then he begins with two illustrations in verses 23 and 24. And each one, the first one involving a brother, it includes the community, right? This is an internal situation. The second one is an external. Each one includes an action and a setting. So we're looking for action and setting in Matthew 5, 23. Look with me. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Like our worship services today, Jewish worship included giving, worshiping God with your giving like we just did a little while ago. And instead of placing their gift or offering in a basket, they would place it on an altar. So if you just want to imagine this illustration with me, imagine that you're sitting here today and you're taking out your cash or check from your wallet or your purse or wherever you get your money from. You're about to text to give and everything else. And there the Lord reminds you that someone has something against you. This is a a real problem. It needs attention. It's not just some unreasonable, irrational grudge, but a true, legitimate Grievance, you have genuinely wronged or hurt your brother or sister. Now the phrase, uh, your brother or sister has something against you, it could also refer to an anger or hatred on the brother or sister's part. That is, even if we hold nothing against them, they are angry with us. What, what is, what's the action? Look at verse 24, what's the action? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and sister. Then give your gift. Or then come and offer your gift. What does the Lord expect? Obedience. Obedience. 
This shouldn't be unfamiliar to us and it shouldn't be unfamiliar to the first century Jews, right? They know this. This way before uh, Christ ever came and preached the Sermon on the Mount, this is what it says in Psalm 60, uh, 66, 18. If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And Samuel said before that in 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams he doesn't need he doesn't want he like your money your gift your offering is useless he wants people kingdom citizens christians need to be people who hear the word of god and obey it that's it he's not looking for a beautiful garden of of painted roses He's not looking for churches that, that are theologically sound but have no power to walk and carry it out and live. Yes, it's ugly. Yeah, it's hard. It's difficult. I know. But he wants people who hear his voice and do what he says to do. D.A. Carson, he writes this, forget the worship service and be reconciled to your brother and only then worship God. Men loves, love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love, but Jesus will have none of it. The lesson is simple. We're to make every effort with no delay or excuses to make our relationship right with our brothers and sisters, keyword, before we come to worship God. Well, that sounds hard, Marcus. I can't read the text any other way. First, be reconciled to your brother. Right? You're there. You're about to give. You're about to worship God with your giving. Leave it. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come and worship. Or then come and give it. Now, we, I understand, like you do, we can't change the person's heart, and sometimes there are people that we've hurt deeply or that have hurt us deeply, and we cannot change their heart. We cannot um, help them see it our way. But understand what Jesus is saying here. We should be as close to the gap in the relationship. We should be as close to reconciliation as we can be. Is there anybody who doesn't have somebody that they've hurt or that has hurt them? Just raise your hand because you should probably preach the rest of this. <laughs> All right, I didn't think so. So if, if me and somebody else are over there, I, I need to be as close as I can be to reconciliation. I need to remove whatever anger there is. I need to remove whatever hostility or animosity there is with me and that person. I can't change them. But God, what Jesus is calling us to is to be as close to that as we can be. Amen? Amen. All right, I need to make sure you're with me. Now often, there's guilt on both sides, Right? Right? There's a little bit of guilt on both sides. Sometimes there's not. Often there's guilt on both sides. But again, we need to be pursuing reconciliation. Now, look with me at Isaiah 1, 11 through 17. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in, in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. 
Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek injustice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. What do you need to do first? Be reconciled to your brother and sister. We love, we love, that's why I think maybe, maybe this is just me, but why, why we're so resistant or maybe why I'm so resistant to this order. It's all right, why can't I just replace it with raising my hands in worship? Why can't I just replace it with more giving or more Bible study or more prayer or more this? The order, I don't give the order. I don't, and you don't. We don't. Jesus gives the order. So if there's any sort of animosity and or sin in our heart, there cannot be genuine worship. Jeremiah 7, 9 and 10, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come to me or then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Are you gonna, are you gonna pursue all of these other idols? Are you gonna pursue all of this other sin? Are you gonna do all of this other stuff and then come to my house and say that we're saved, that we're Christians? True worship is it's enhanced by better relationships between those who come to worship God together. True worship is enhanced by better relationships with people who come to worship God. It's not enhanced by better events, by better preaching, by better uh, singing and song or, or buildings. It's not enhanced by that stuff. So why do we keep replacing better relationships with more stuff? Maybe, maybe it's just me. God's concerned with our heart before he's concerned with our external actions. He doesn't need your money. But we need to remember this, that in that aspect, as sinful human beings, we could never be... Uh, totally right with others, right? There's always some degree of anger, even if we don't recognize it. So in that form, all, or in that sense, all worship is therefore uh, tainted or ineffective. But remember that everything that Jesus is saying in this passage, as in the rest of the Sermon of the Mount, it's to show us the absolutely perfect standard of God's righteousness and the absolutely impossible task of meeting it in our own power. What are you saying, Marcus? That Jesus is driving us to himself. He knows that we can't do it. He's pushing us to his righteousness. You can't do it in yourself. Now, in verses 23 and 24, we see the, the command is for, or the command to be reconciled to your brother is between uh, two parties the, in an internal setting, a community setting. The second one, the second illustration in verses 25 and 26, 
It's an external, right? Two people are at odds with each other. They're going to court. Remember, there's a setting and there's an action. Matthew 25 and 26, or Matthew 5, 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going, while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So setting, two people are on the way, or they're at odds with each other. They're on their way to court. And the court must be involved or must get involved. We're not told why, but that's the setting. But clearly, the context suggests that one person's guilty and the other person's innocent. So the accusation is legitimate. Now, Roman law provided a plaintiff that would grab the accused and go with him or take him with the accuser to go see a judge. So um, what they could do, the two parties, they could settle on the way, which is what Jesus says. With your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you, yeah, there we go. In verse 25, while you are going with him to court, while you're on the way to court, while the plaintiff is walking with you side by side, you can settle together. But once the judge gets involved, the only thing that's waiting the accused is the judge's judgment. You can't settle after that. So once the judge determined the punishment, the guilty party would go from the judge to the guard to the prison. And to avoid any judgment in prison, he had to pay the last cent. This was the smallest Roman coin available. So the illustration is a picture against, uh, of sin against another person. So it must be resolved. Sin must be resolved uh, to avoid having to face a sentence from the divine judge. Now the action. What is the action? Jesus instructs the accused to settle on the way before he faces the judge. And John Piper, he makes two helpful illustrations. We're, getting, we're coming to a close here soon. John Piper says this, We are only responsible for what others hold against us when it is due to real sin or blundering on our part. We're only responsible when it's due to, to us, Right? Then he says, we are responsible to pursue reconciliation, but live with the pain if it doesn't succeed. In other words, we are not responsible to make reconciliation happen. We're not responsible to restore the relationship. We're responsible to getting as close to reconciliation as we can on our part. We can't change the other person. Only God can do that. And if we never are reconciled, well, then we need to live with the pain of that. But everything on our end needs to, we need to do everything we can. We need to pursue it actively. There's no, well, I'm ju I just put it in God's hands, even though you haven't made any steps towards it. And Jesus, inst uh, he instructs his people to pursue reconciliation, even if you're not the angry or offended party. Did you hear what I said? Jesus instructs his people to pursue reconciliation even if you're not the offended or angry party. Why? Why? Because when you do, you imitate God who our sin offended, who we sinned against grieve, like, like ongoing, like offended him deeply, the, the creator, maker, sustainer of the universe. We sinned against him deeply and he pursued us pursued reconciliation with us by sending Christ. And then, not only that, but, but sending the Holy Spirit to convict us with things like these, like, yeah, I, I've murdered some people in my heart. Don't, don't hear half of that. I've been angry with people, which Jesus equates to murder in the heart. 
and I'm guilty, but he pardons me. He pursues us and pardons us in Jesus. When we, when we pursue, what, like, what would it look like if the church started imitating God in this way? Right, if, if, better in, if better worship is enhanced not by better things and stuff and events and everything else, but by better relationships, what would the church look like? What would our worship look like? What would our witness look like if we pursued people that we were at odds with, even if it wasn't our fault? Paul says this in Romans twelve eighteen. if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Here's how we're going to end this morning. If, if you have anger in your heart, right, towards somebody, I want, take out your phones really quick. Take out your phones. Take out your phones or a piece of paper and a pen. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask the Lord to, to remind you of everybody that you have anger in your heart against. Make a list, and I want you to pray and ask the Lord to give you an opportunity to reconcile with that person. I want you to, to, to make a list, and if they're in this room, the Lord's provided you an opportunity to be obedient this morning. Yeah, see, it's really cool when, when we hear what Jesus says, but we don't have to do anything about it. We just get to go to lunch. If they're in this room, the Lord has provided you an opportunity today. Today, what would happen to our worship? What would happen to our witness? Or are we just gonna rush into another song, raise our hands, get out of here, and act like it's not there? The rubber meets the road when when you start explaining the word. And if they're not in this room, I want you to write a letter to them and I want you to bring it with you on Wednesday night. Shameless plug, small groups, last, one of the last ones. I want, you to, I want you to bring it with you on Wednesday night. It could be anonymous, I don't care. It could be, um, the letter could be sealed, I don't care. You don't have their address, we'll find it together. I don't care. We need to be obedient. We have to stop making excuses. So here's what we do. Make that list. If they're in the room, be obedient. If they're not in the room, write a letter. Send them a text or a call. Bring it with you on Wednesday night. We'll mail them out together. I'm not gonna ask. I don't care what the situation is. I don't care if you're right and they're wrong or you're wrong and they're right. I don't care. I'm here to support you in that because I firmly believe that God will absolutely transform our, wit, our worship and our witness when we do. Okay? And, and if you're not ready to do that, then maybe you need to leave your gift at the altar and go for a little while until you're ready to hear the Lord's voice and be obedient. That's not how you grow a church. That's not what they teach you in seminary, but it's what the Lord taught on the Sermon on the Mount. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and give your gift. Pray with me. Father, certainly there are many people who we have who we have murdered in our heart, who we have been angry with. 
And we know, according to your word, it's not right. I pray, God, that as you put these people on our minds and and in our hearts, that, that you would help us to be obedient. Everything in us wants to fight fight uh, reconciliation when we have this kind of, kind of anger, this selfish anger. But we know and we see what you could do through people who will listen and obey your voice. So help us to be those people today for your glory and your honor. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.